0: Very warm welcome to you all this evening. Thank you so much for coming as ever. And I hear that the pie went down particularly well. I had some pie and the seconds were being demanded before the first had been fully served. So I take that as a compliment. Thanks so much to the um, behind the scenes team who've done a great job as ever. Um, Welcome to the last evening of big questions. There are a few newcomers here this evening. Welcome to you. The way the evening's going to pan out, hopefully, is that I'm going to speak for the next 25 minutes or so. Then there's kind of free-for-all discussions around the tables, um, no holds barred, and uh, do write down any questions while I'm speaking or during those discussions. There are slips of paper on the tables. And after those discussions, there'll be an open mic Q&A time with me. Um, No question too stupid, no question too complex. I will be honest enough to say I have no idea if that is the case. Um, and then we'll aim to wrap up by quarter past nine. Um, so that's, that's where we're going. But I hope you knew what you were coming to. Um, the title is The Liberating God? Question um, Am I really free? Or we might want even to sharpen it up even more than that. If I obey God, am I really free? Or if I have to obey God, am I really free? But that's the question uh, surrounding this idea of freedom. Let me... Yeah, these are my points: confusion, complexity, and Christ freedom. I have a, a, a love of alliteration, which is quite enslaving, ironically. Um, so, first of all, confusion. Freedom. Uh, we want it. Um, we demand it. Actually, in our society, but I think increasingly we don't know where to find it. We're confused when it comes to freedom. Before we get down to the fiddly business of defining terms, what is freedom, just think for a moment of how saturated our world of ideas is with the idea of freedom. We love it. Political freedom. Think of the much-celebrated Arab Spring. Now, we're not quite so sure what to think about that. Uh, Freedom, or the revisiting of political emancipation for women in the UK, if you've seen that 2014 film Suffragette. Or sexual freedom, uh, gay pride uh, parades. Or sexuality freedom, the first transgender model featuring in Vogue, Andrea Petrick. Or the Danish girl, if you've seen that uh, film so recently in our cinemas. Or freedom of information, whatever we might think about that. Free speech, freedom of belief, free market economics, freedom. It, It sells, we love it. I even came across a leaflet the other day, um, kind of selling the Alexander Technique for for a posture. And the heading somehow on it was freedom. I've no idea how it connected with the Alexander Technique, but it sells. Whatever freedom is, we, we love it. But even more than us loving freedom, we demand it. It's become something close to an absolute value in our day and age. We cannot deny anyone their freedom. And if you don't believe me, next time you're in a debate with a friend um, where you're discussing something, uh, you can pull the freedom card and you will win, guaranteed. It's like the ace of spades. You could just say something like, um, sorry, I think you're actually infringing upon my freedom, uh, or, or I actually feel quite oppressed you know, by what you're saying, and that person will back off. You will win that argument, not logically, but because freedom has become an absolute value. But besides all our talk and celebration and enforcement of freedom, we don't seem to be able to enjoy freedom as much as we would like to in behavioral terms. Many in our generation don't have freedom. They, we, are enslaved. And I don't here mean enslaved to another human being in the slave trade, although sadly, that is alive and well, that business. I mean enslaved to addictions, of various kinds, enslaved to themselves, enslaved to ourselves, we might say. Addicted to alcohol, that's on the rise, or addicted to a body image of some kind, anorexia we're very familiar with. There was an iPlayer program about bigorexia, this new thing where men get addicted of going going to the gym and um, think they're smaller than they are and you can see, that's happened to me, you know, I'm muscle bound, but this, 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 this kind of idea of addiction to personal image. Or online popularity paranoia. You put the thing on Facebook, how many likes do I have? Or you tweet, how many retweets do I get? Or addiction to smartphones. Uh, Can I commend Radio 4 to you? I think it's brilliant. And I was listening to this Radio 4 program, which was talking about our addiction to smartphones and our inability, therefore, to be bored anymore because we're so dependent on our phone. Uh, A free moment in the queue at Tesco's or wherever we shop, and out comes the phone, and we'll just, you know, Skim through Facebooks and blogs or text some people. Uh, Maybe we're addicted to our smartphones. Pornography, the list could go on. Now, addiction is a very strong word, and maybe some of us here don't feel we are addicted to something in some area or another. But even we, I suggest, will be exhibiting what um, therapists would call compulsive behaviors. In other words, doing something more than we would like to do it, more than we would choose to do it. And we only realize how compelled our behaviors are when we try and cut back on that thing. So the typical example is um, Facebook, you know, uh, Lent. You you might have come across a few people saying, you know, you won't find me on Facebook for these uh, few weeks or whatever. As soon as we try and fast Facebook, We discover, oh my goodness, I actually am quite addicted to this thing, or or we try and fast on the smartphones or whatever it is, and we go through cold turkey. And we realize, actually, my behavior in that area is quite compulsive. And the problem is not education, it's not that we don't know what to do. The problem is deeper than that. Uh, There's a program on iPlayer at the moment. I found it actually very boring. I don't really recommend it, but it's called Trust Me, I'm a Doctor. And uh, in case you're interested, series four, episode four, I think it was about three and a half minutes in, there was this quote. We know what we want to do. We know how to do it. The question is, why don't we do it? It's a good question, isn't it? It's a fascinating question. It's fascinating, isn't it, that our medical care is the most developed that it's ever been in the history of the world. More than ever, we know what we should and shouldn't eat, for example, and yet obesity and heart disease are almost inexplicably on the rise. Somehow, knowing what's good for us isn't enough to stop us ignoring the instructions. And therefore, we recognize not all is as it should be. Hence, our generation's appetite for self-help books. You go into a bookstore, you'll see whole racks full of self-help books lining the walls. We recognize we need help. Uh, hence um, the new career of behavioral experts, counselors, and the timeless New Year's resolutions. It's a very interesting thing, isn't it, that the freedom generation is the self-help generation. It's quite an odd couple of things to find in the same group of people. That's a puzzle. Freedom We're confused about it. We want it, we celebrate it, we demand it, and yet I don't think we know where it is to be found. We're confused. Well, surely the first thing is to define our terms. What actually is freedom? Let's take our culture's um, definition of freedom to start with, which by and large, let me suggest, is something like this. It is the absence of all constraints upon me. It's the ability to be self-determining, autonomous, me doing what I want to do when I want to do it, unhindered. That's what I think our culture understands when it says freedom. And I guess that is why, of all the places, we do not expect to find freedom in Christianity. Just think about it for a moment. I mean, if freedom is self-determining autonomy, then the idea of an authoritative God is only going to enslave me, right? I mean, if freedom is doing what I want, when I want, then a way of life like Christianity, which has a real place for self-denial, is only going to repress me, right? And so we think that finding freedom in Christianity is like trying to find fresh air in London or trying to get a tan in the UK. You're looking for the right thing, but in the wrong place. That's what we think. But I want to suggest that freedom is best found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the case I'm going to try and make now. So confusion. Secondly, complexity. Let me suggest that freedom is more complex than simply the absence of all constraints upon the individual. For three main reasons, it seems to me. See what you think. First reason personally, I am conflicted at the level of my desires. I want to do different things at once. It's not just that I want to do one thing and I despise all the other options. I want to do different things at the same time. So for example, I want to go for a run and Skype my brother in Australia at the same time. Which should I do? Now, sure, you're thinking, John, don't exaggerate the problem. That's not a big problem. That's a diary problem. Just do one after the other. Fine. But consider this second thing. My desires hold different values. For example, I want to go to Canada more than I want to have an ice cream. Now, that helps me determine what I should pursue as a priority. But the observant amongst you might say, well, John, why not do both? At the same time, why not have an ice cream in Canada? Surely then you'll be a very happy boy. But then consider this, third thing. Sometimes my desires conflict with one another in unreconcilable ways. For example, I want to live healthily into old age, and yet I still want to smoke this Marlboro Light cigarette, or indeed the whole packet, Or I want to get a first class degree from university and I still want to lie in. Or I want to have a six pack and I want to drink the six pack. So unreconcilable differences. And now we're getting to the heart of the complexity of freedom. Sometimes I would suggest often my desires conflict with one another. I simply cannot have it all at once. At which point we meet two very important concepts when it comes to freedom. The first, self-denial, and the second is givenness. Firstly, self-denial. We wouldn't immediately have thought of self-denial and freedom as being friends with one another. Would you agree? Self-denial and freedom. You would have thought they would be sworn enemies. And yet, it is obvious, is it not, that often, in order to be free, I need to exert self-denial. I need to deny myself that cigarette in order to enjoy the greater freedom of living a long, healthy life. That's obvious. Deny myself the lie-in in in order to enjoy the freedom a first-class degree will afford me. Deep down, we know that. Isn't that why we envy people who deny themselves the donut in favor of the quinoa? Or deny themselves another episode of Britain's Got Talent or Might Have Talent in favor of going for a run. We kind of envy those people. We look up to them. Or consider it on a global historical scale. The comedian and broadcaster who I think is brilliant called David Mitchell did a wonderful series on Radio 4. You can see I'm an addict listening to that radio station. But it was all about the history of manners and etiquette through the whole of human history. And um, one of the experts he was interviewing spoke about the influential 20th century German sociologist who has a very pleasing name, Norbert Elias. And this chap, Elias, had mapped what he called the civilizing process through all of human history. And Elias comments that the essence of good manners is self-denial. Not murdering someone or stealing someone's wife when I happen to feel like it, that is self-denial, and it is good manners. I'm sure we'd agree. And generally, therefore, the progression of society and civilization developed as self-denial developed. So to a great extent, progress has aligned with corporate self-denial. Or let's talk about the smaller scale of individual relationships, topical with Valentine's Day just recently. You're not gone. If you've ever been in a romantic relationship, you will know this already, forgive me. If you haven't been, I'll pass this bit of advice on to you for free. Your boyfriend, girlfriend, partner, husband, wife will not take kindly to you doing what you want, when you want, with no reference to what he or she wants. They just won't. I'm looking at Katie here. Love works because of self-denial. In order to love Katie, my wife, I have to exert the self denial, which looks for me like not having uh, white bread and marmalade on my toast every morning, or not listening to that band Radiohead all the time because that would make her feel utterly depressed, or not spending all of our money on bikes. I have to exert those self denials in order to love Katie. But, and here's the thing, I have never felt more free. Free to love and free to be loved. Love is like that. It is simultaneously the place where we feel most free and the place which demands most self-denial. I think that's quite profound. Can we see then, that just because a worldview like Christianity has a place for self-denial, that is no reason to reject it as having a possibility of offering us freedom. To the contrary, it may offer precisely what we need to be free because self-denial is necessary for freedom. We know that. But how do we decide what we should deny ourselves and what we should give ourselves? What are the greater freedoms worth sacrificing to attain in life? We don't have time to answer that fully now, but it has a great deal to do with what philosophers call givenness. It's a word for describing the way things are. I don't know if anyone has children here, but we've all been there when a child is doing that really annoying thing and saying, why? Why? And they keep on going, why? And it goes on and on and on. And the beleaguered parent keeps on answering and answering and answering until eventually they have to say something like, well, just darling, that's the way it is. It's just because. And what that parent there is talking about is givenness. There's only so much one can do to explain it. It just is like that. Uh, If I drop an apple, it will fall. Might call that the givenness of gravity. Likewise, in those examples we had earlier, there's a givenness that if I don't take care of my personal health, I just probably will die earlier. It's given. They're just rules of life. And we might call the recognition of them common sense. And therefore, the, de- the self-denials we need to exert in order to enjoy freedom need to be in line with the rules of givenness in the world around us. We're free to ignore those givens in our actions, but we are not free to avoid the consequences attached to them. So I'm free to you know, exercise my freedom if I, if I want to jump off a cliff But sadly, they will have grave consequences for me. I can choose the action, but I can't choose the consequence. So confusion, complexity, now Christ's freedom. And the God of the Bible tells us that the givenness in the universe extends beyond this material world. It's in all of Jesus's teaching, shoots it right through. For example, that if you or I hold a grudge our bitterness will eat us up on the inside and will erode our ability to trust anyone else in the future. That is a moral given, according to Jesus. That if we don't keep our word regularly, others will really struggle to trust us going into the future. That's a given. That if we try to control every variable in our day and eradicate risk in my tomorrow, I will be eaten up with worry and I'll develop a phobia. That's a given, according to Jesus. That gazing on things that I think will make me happy if I own them in the future will actually make me more dissatisfied. That is a given, according to Jesus. So besides material givenness, therefore, like gravity, there is a moral givenness stitched into the universe and stitched into our lives And most people I know recognize this. I've lost count of the number of people who've said to me, uh, I admire the moral teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Why do they admire it? It's because they recognize the truth in it. They recognize the givenness of it. It just makes sense. The problem is that they, that we, just can't seem to keep to his lifestyle tips, to his commands. Would you turn with me to page 1074, In your Bibles, you'll find one just um, in the seats you're sitting on, page 1074. And once you get to page 1074, have a look down to John chapter 8, verse 31, just um, reading under the subheading of the children of Abraham. Is everyone there? Let me read. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now, a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, in part, verse 32, if you look down at that verse, is a summary of exactly what I've been saying so far this evening. But Jesus just takes us a little bit further. He says, the first step to know freedom is to know something called the truth, the fundamental givenness in our world. And once we know that, once we employ self-denial to live in line with that, we will be set free. But there's a problem. Verse 34, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And again, although we use different language, we've already seen this, haven't we? We're enslaved to the things we want to do, which perversely are not the things which are best for us. We're addicted to them, we might say. We want to live a good life. Maybe to that end, we admire the teachings of Jesus, no end. But we just can't seem to obey them properly. Our desires are conflicted. Sometimes we want to do what's not best for us materially. Want to smoke the cigarette, have the lion, drink the six-pack. Uh, sometimes we want to do what's not best for us, frankly, morally. Bear the grudge. Break our word. Want to control all the variables. Indulge in dissatisfying consumerism. But deep down, we know we shouldn't want those things, but we can't help ourselves. And in this deep sense, I am addicted to wanting the things which are not best for me. I'm enslaved, Jesus says, to sin. And if maybe you're sitting in your seat thinking, I'm not really convinced by that, John. Just think about for a moment the thing or things or the person or persons whom you live for. Will you do that for me? You don't need to say it out loud. But the thing or things, the person or persons whom you live for. Maybe just hold them in the front of your mind. Now, let me talk us through the three stages of addiction. First, tolerance. At first, when you or I go to that thing or person to feel good or to get that thrill or to feel calm, it works. Boy, does it work. It works really well. The high is good. I feel calm. It it works. But the more times I go to that thing or person, the less of a high I receive. But the more I feel I need him or her or it. And so we we tolerate a law of diminishing returns. I want it more, but it satisfies me less. And we tolerate that. Tolerance is the first stage of an addiction. Second stage of addiction is denial. Uh, And this is when there's a niggle in my conscience or your conscience or or a friend picks us up and challenges us. And they challenge us on our habit or whatever it is. How do we respond? Well, we rationalize it and we deny it. That's what we do. We say to ourselves internally or maybe out loud, it's nothing. It's no problem at all. Everyone else is, is doing it. It's normal. So tolerance denial. And the final stage, I think this is, this is pretty profound, it, it's the dissolving of our willpower. The dissolving of our willpower. And I think this is the clincher and this is when I know that I am really enslaved to something. This is when I try to escape the sorrow which my addiction is bringing to me. How? By going to the very thing which I'm addicted to for comfort. Let me say that again. It's when I try to escape the sorrow which my addiction is bringing me, how? By going to the very thing which I'm addicted to for comfort. So it's the alcoholic having another drink to avoid the hangover. It's the dissatisfied consumer going shopping again to escape that feeling of emptiness after the last shopping spree. And I recognize that in my own life in different ways. Can I say that has been my experience of living for anything and anyone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking personally, I am an addict screaming in my soul for freedom. And it may be that some of us in this room here feel the same way too, if we're honest. And the question is, where can that freedom be found? Well, let's read on in our passage. Do you see how Jesus develops the logic in verse 36? In verse 32, it was the truth which sets us free. But in verse 36, he explains that the truth, the givenness in the world, is not an abstract set of rules discerned by common sense, but the truth is a person, the Son. If the Son sets us free, we will be free indeed. Now, can I say politely, this is life-changing, life-changing, In verse 35, he kind of paints a picture for us, and he uses a picture of a wealthy household, a stately home. So I know it's a controversial thing to admit, but some of us here probably will watch Downton Abbey. Um, Whatever we think about Downton Abbey, can ask you to think about that kind of stately home in your mind, or upstairs, downstairs, if you've seen that TV program, but a stately home with household staff, where the master of that house is very powerful, very wealthy, a very wealthy individual. And in a house like that, a great deal rests on how we relate to the master of the household. And Jesus gives us two options in verse 35. Are we a slave to the master? Or do we belong to the family? Are we upstairs or are we downstairs, to use that title? If we're a slave to the master then we can be thrown out of the house at any time, given our P45 or whatever it is. We can lose the privilege of being in that household of blessing at any time. Our privilege is very fragile indeed. But if we are a member of the family in Downton Abbey, we will inherit the house one day and our position is secure. It is concrete privilege. Now, here's the thing. Today, this evening... Jesus Christ is offering to make us sons and daughters of God in his house of blessing. He's offering to give us a permanent place at the table as a member of his family so that we needn't fear being thrown out. But if we live for anything or anyone other than Jesus Christ, we will be enslaved to that thing or that person. So, for example, see what you think of these. If we live for appearance, beauty of some sort, we'll be enslaved to fashion and to the mirror, our reflection in the mirror. And when the wrinkles come, we'll be terrified and we will loathe ourselves, we'll be thrown out of the house of blessing. If we live for family happiness and harmony, we'll be enslaved to contriving harmony and the happy memories at Christmas time and so on. But when the arguments come over washing up, as surely they will, we'll be utterly depressed, thrown out of the house of blessing. If we live for intellectual achievement, let's say, we'll be enslaved to getting that first-class degree, that publication, that lectureship, the approval of the academy. But when the bad reviews come, as they will do one day, will be thrown out of the house of blessing. Why will these things enslave us? It's because they're not what we were designed to be living for, because they're not able to forgive us. If we follow them, they will eat us up and spit us out. But can I say Jesus is the only master who offers us forgiveness when we fail to worship him first and foremost as we ought Now, plenty of my friends would testify to their following of Jesus Christ being the beginning of them being released from those compulsive or addictive behaviors they were in before. Jesus doesn't just forgive us, of course he does that, but he frees us from ourselves. He gives us new desires by the Holy Spirit to do the right things, the things which are best for us and which honor him. If the sun sets us free, we will be free indeed. If I have to obey God, am I really free? I want to say, yeah, yes. He's the only one who can free us, because with him is truth and mercy. I'm going to finish there, and I'm going to hand over to you guys to to chat. Free for all discussion, write your questions down, and there'll be open mic Q&A a bit later on. Thank you.
1: Okay, we've come to the Q&A part of the evening, Um, so if you could just wrap up your table discussions and we'll bring it out into the open. I'm going to start John off with one question that we have here, and then I'll come round and collect other questions that you've written down from the table. So, the first question here, John, what are the main things you have to give up or deny as a Christian compared to a normal, compassionate human being? In other words, what makes Christian self-denial from different from normal self-denial.
0: Great, great question. I'm sure they all will be great questions. Can you hear me all right? Um, I think there are probably two things I'd want to say on that. The first is um, relating to depth and, and therefore motivation. Um, I think we may have spoken about this in previous weeks, but forgive me if I'm caricaturing, but I, I think... A common conception of what it means to be good—a good human being—will relate to behaviour um, over motivation. Now, of course, both are inextricably related, but um, people will look on the exterior of someone and say, "Are they a loving person?" It is, of course, much harder to look into the heart or the mind. Say, so "Why were you doing that 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 task?" And the promise of the gospel in the Bible. Jesus promises to give us his Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit does is begin to change our motivations from the inside out. So that before I was a Christian, let's say you would have thought that I was a charitable person. I know that's a stretch of the imagination. But let's say I still did good things. I'm sure I did on occasion. But those motivations which I had would have been very, very mixed. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would recognize ourselves in that. Um, So why do I do the good thing? Well, there are all sorts of wrong motivations or not the highest motivations for that. Maybe I want to be seen to be a good person. Um, The typical example of that is sadly in church buildings, you see all these brass plaques around. Um, Why did people give for the maintenance of the church or whatever in the past? Well, because they wanted their name on a brass plaque. Now, is that good? Is that fundamentally good? questionable motivations and it? actually it's them still at the center of that it's not actually for anyone else supreme it's still for them so i'm not saying there's no good in it but i'm saying it's not the supreme good now what the holy spirit promises to do is to slowly change our motivations so that we desire to do what is good uh, for the highest reason and the highest reason is for god's glory as our creator and our redeemer to do it for the lord jesus christ and i think the biggest test of our motivations that i apply to myself with fear is, am I doing things which are costly to myself in private when no one else sees? So examples of that might be financial giving that I don't tell anyone else about and and I I never get my name in brass plaque on a church wall, but am I still giving in private uh, to good causes? That's quite a good test of my motivation. Uh, Or, um, I don't know, my thought life. There are all sorts of things that are unseen, but where things are costly to me and in private, That is where my motivations are clarified. And I think increasingly, the longer one is a Christian, the more the Holy Spirit begins to change our motivations. And that's a good litmus test to apply. Um, Yeah.
1: Just to follow on from that, um, a question about the priorities in our commitments. Um, Can you, You talked about being enslaved to things or people. Can you be enslaved to a husband or a wife, for example? For example, if you live for family and God, is that somehow contrary to, to an authentic Christian life?
0: Mm. Great question, and a complex question. Um, you, you may know in the Bible that the first two commandments are this, and the most important commandments are this, according to Jesus, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. So we get there already, loving horizontally, as it were, other human beings, and loving, loving God. And um, someone, I think, once asked me, but how can I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, strength while I'm loving my neighbor with kind of everything I've got? Is, you know, it's kind of one or the other. If it's 100% I'm giving here, I've got 0% to give here. We can cut 50-50 or 40-60 or how are we going to do this? But actually, God being our creator, um, loving him, one of the main, main ways we do that is to love other creations, other human beings, others who are in his world. The key thing is the order of those commandments. So they're not conflicting or unreconcilable. The key thing is the order. So it is a key thing that I love Jesus Christ more than I love Katie Ash. And in fact, that is what makes our marriage work when it works. So I love her second to Jesus Christ. Now he should be the only one I love more than her, but, but, but that is the key thing. And it's, it's, that's key because otherwise I will become enslaved to what Katie thinks of me. I'll live in fear of uh, her disapproval, um, I will live only and ever for her every woman wish. Now, that's not actually good for her, and that's not good for me. It builds anxiety and a sort of inward-looking relationship. We've all seen them. Maybe we're in one. You know, Valentine's Day is a typical thing. Uh, the world says love is a, a thing where we just have a table for two, looking over a candle. But actually, I think the most healthy relationships I have seen are relationships which have those inward-looking moments. You've got to invest in the relationship, in order that you can look out and serve the world around you. So I think the insular um, looking inside kind of um, model is actually quite damaging for society and culture. And the only way we look out is actually by loving Christ more than one another. Yeah.
1: Ben, can I just hold you there? For, I'm just gonna go to Ricardo first. Um, he said, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, we have another question here and um what are the important values of Christianity? So you need to compromise to enjoy living Christianity, truth, and freedom. Please.
0: Thank you. May I just repeat that, Ricardo? To, yes. No, no, I'll repeat it to make sure I've understood it, shall I? What are the main self-denials in Christianity to make sure we're enjoying the freedom Christ offers? Is that right? Um, great question. I think it would be a mistake. There are all sorts. I mean, if you read the New Testament, you read the Old Testament, you will find a whole list if you kind of list them. We could go many, many A4 pages of things to deny ourselves in order to be free. But there is one thing at the root of them all, and that is pride. So I would say if I was going to choose one, it would be pride. Uh, So there there are many sins which carry a huge kind of red flag alarm bell thing in our culture. I'm not saying whether they are or aren't sins, uh, things that are embarrassing to admit to at dinner parties and so on. But actually, pride is at the root of them all. Now, somehow there's a place for pride in our culture, but there shouldn't be. Um, The best illustration for self-denial of pride I can think of is this. If you read 1 and 2 Peter, you know the Apostle Peter, his letters in the New Testament. Um, You may know the true Bible story where Peter denies Jesus three times, very well known. Um, do you know Jesus? No. Do you know Jesus? And then the cock crows. So Peter is someone who has etched on his mind and his conscience self-denial or denial because he feels deeply guilty for denying Jesus many, many times. It's very interesting. In his letters, he talks about self-denial quite a lot. And I find it a helpful picture to bear in mind. So what does self-denial look like? It looks like myself coming to me or my pride or my ego coming to me and saying, John, will you indulge me? And I have to say what Peter said about Jesus. I have to say, I don't even know you. Does that make sense? Because my whole life should be reorientated to give God glory rather than to give myself glory. Yeah. Thank you. Ben. You said, John, that becoming a Christian will set us free. But what good is that freedom if Christianity is false? Um, in a nutshell, it's no good at all. Do you want me to say a bit more? <laughs> I mean, I, clearly, clearly, I'm coming from the perspective that I'm arguing, I'm trying to persuade everyone that Christianity is true. That's quite a profound statement. I'm not quite sure what that statement means. Christianity is true. Christ really existed. Christ's claims were backed up by his life. He really did die and rise again. If you hear here last week, we looked a lot at that. I think these are some of the fundamental questions to ascertain truth. The first week was looking at the intellectual credibility of the Christian faith, listen to that if that's your issue. Um, but I think w- within the bounds of today's kind of remit, I was sort of talking about you know givenness being stitched into the universe. Um, it's very interesting. I think there is a common consensus over most areas of morality. Now clearly there are some big areas of disagreement. But I named a couple, just throw away lines. Um, what did I name, murder and adultery. Now I think by and large, most cultures worldwide would agree that those things are not good for society or culture. And um, why? Why is that? And I would say Christianity gives the best account for why those things are wrong um, because of its theological structure and therefore the best moral incentive not to engage in those things. Um, so I, I would, I think in the fundamental answer to that question would be, you know, is Christianity true or not? I would say, why not engage in an experiment? Try out self-denials that Christ tells us to, to, to exercise in, in the scriptures. Why not give it a go and see how you feel? I will tell you how you'll feel. You'll feel it's hard because there's a big part of us that needs turning around. The desire change it takes a while. But you will also feel very free. And I think you will, I mean, we were talking over here at this table just a minute ago, and one of them was saying, uh, Becky was saying, the more she has followed Jesus' commands and exerted that kind of self-denial, the more human she has felt. That's quite a profound claim. I'm just saying, why not try it for yourself and see how it goes?
1: Okay, so from Christian experience to a more fundamental question from this table over here. How do we reconcile the concept of free will with the concept of an all powerful God?
0: Thank you so much. It's one of those questions you see coming like a train down the track as soon as you write the title of a talk like this one. So thanks for asking it. I'm not ashamed to to answer it at all. And I think, in a nutshell, the answer is on a logical basis, I can't, you can't, no one can. So, how can we engage mankind's or humankind's responsibility? How can he hold us accountable? Um, alongside God being absolutely in charge. Um, That's another example of two things which seem logically conflicting, but actually the Bible is unashamed at holding those two absolutely together. Why does the Bible do that? I think I'm going to go back a couple of steps before I go forward. Um, There's one diagram that I sometimes use in conversations with friends at dinner parties and things where I have a pen and a napkin And um, I always have a pen in my back pocket. Um, It's just a quadrant, so four squares. And in each of the squares, I write down, and I nick this from someone else, not mine. I write down the different authorities every human being will defer to. So authority number one begins with a B, Bible. Authority number two is reason, begins with an R, reason. So if it makes sense, that's logic, really. Authority number three is experience. If it feels good, do it. Authority number four is institution. Uh, I don't know, the Roman Catholic Church says, or my work says. or So it's called the Bree diagram, B-R-I-E, Bible, Reason, Institution, Experience. And uh, God is so generous in the way he reasons with us in scripture. He is trying to get us to move to the B-box. Every Christian is somewhere in the B-box. It is not that experience or reason or institution are unimportant at all. That's not the case. But it is the case that what the Bible says finally goes. And he wants us to trust him with that. Now, in a lot of these talks, I've been arguing from an experiential angle. I think Christianity makes absolute sense experientially. Often the suffering talk I was doing that, and it really resonated with many of us emotionally. That's because experientially Christianity makes sense. In the intellectual credibility talk, I was was arguing a lot from the R box, reason, And I think Christianity can can be defended plausibly and actually quite overwhelmingly in terms of reason and rationale and logic. But what God is trying to get us to do is to move towards the B-box eventually and to to say, actually, because you tell me this is the case, I trust you that that is the case. Now, let me just anticipate a second follow-up question from this. Um, The follow-up question might well be, but that is a circular argument. Um, It is intellectually bankrupt to say, I believe that this is true because God says it's true. You see, that's very circular. Do you see that? Um, lots of my friends would would say that's circular. And it is circular, but every argument is circular when you pursue it to its ultimate authority. So if if I speak with with you, let's say you have reason or logic as your ultimate arbiter of truth or your ultimate authority because it makes sense if I pursue argument with you long enough and I say, why, 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 we will finally get to the stage where you say, well, because it makes sense. And I would say, that's circular. How can you say it makes sense because it makes sense? And every argument ends up being circular like that. And God, if he exists, has every right to claim to be the ultimate arbiter who gets to tell us. So it's a big question. I've answered it very honestly. And I think... um, In a setting like this, that's quite a scary answer to get. I don't know what experience you have of the Bible or anything like that. But I would say to you, why not read a gospel and see what you make of it? Have a a look at it and see. And why not approach it with your, I don't know what box you're in, experience, reason, institution, and see how it makes sense in those boxes. I think it would hold a lot of water. Yeah. Thank you.
1: Any more questions from the floor on that point or from any other point of view or from something else in John's talk. Anything else from the floor?
0: Time has flown anyway, I think. So let me just close with a a few words. With great sadness, it's the last big big questions of of this series. If I was to guess, I would guess that there are probably three groups of people here um, this evening. First of all, we might call the first group the skeptics group. Now, it might be that you've rocked up and you've found yourself here and this is the first one you've come to. Can I say welcome? And can I say come back? And well, I'm going to flag up some different events you might be interested in in a minute. But maybe you rocked up you know, five weeks ago right at the beginning as a skeptic and you're still a skeptic. Uh, maybe you've just come today as a skeptic and you find yourself still a skeptic. That's fine. Perhaps you don't know the reason for your skepticism. Perhaps you know it's this or that. And can I say to you, if that's you, Um, open the jam jar, let your skepticism breathe. I really would like to invite you to do that. So ask your questions, pursue your doubts. If you'd like to buttonhole me afterwards, let's get a coffee in the diary or a pint or whatever you'd prefer. Let's talk about it. Um, Sometimes people feel ashamed asking their really prickly questions in church because they feel it's like our home territory. We gave you a free meal. But please let your skepticism breathe. Open the jam jar, that'd be great. Why not take a gospel read a gospel, maybe John's gospel, we've looked at it every one of these weeks, and pray the atheist's prayer, which is this, Lord, I don't know you exist, or I know you don't exist, actually, but if you do, then please show me your truth in this gospel. I wonder whether you'd do that. Read it with an open mind, see where you find yourself. Second group, perhaps you're someone who um, came a long way over the, over the course of this course. Perhaps you would have called yourself a Christian when you first came. I know there are a few in in this category. And uh, for you, this course has been like a bit of a homecoming. And you have thought, oh, wow, I've really been doubting some things which needn't have been doubted. I'm now much more confident in my faith. So thank you. And I want to say to you, why not come and join our church family? Come and join us on a Sunday and see what you make of it. You know, we've got these events weeks coming up. Um, Come and join us on one of the Sundays for that. We'd love to have you. Taste and see. I think you'll probably love it, probably, depending on who you meet. Um, The third group, um, I reckon there may be one or two here who've heard enough. And your big questions have been satisfied. I wouldn't call my answers big, but you've been satisfied with what I've said. And frankly, honestly, you want in. You kind of think, this sounds plausible, good, experientially sound. I want to get in on this you want to embark on the adventure of following the Lord Jesus Christ and joining his church. And if that's you, can I say that is just brilliant. Please don't leave without speaking to me or the friend who brought you or the leader on your table because we'd love to chat with you and help you through the next, next few stages. But whichever group you're in, I flagged them up before and they'll be on the slides as we finish. Um, we've got an alpha course starting on 23rd of March. Please come to that. It might be just the thing if you've had been on a bit of a journey through this and the Alpha course has just be the next few steps. Um, there's this events week we've got coming up. All sorts of things. Cayley, wine tasting. What else have we got? A country walk. All sorts of things. There'll be a talk at some of those things. Not a talk at some others. Come along. There's a load of flyers just on the table the other side of that pillar. Um, why not join us on a Sunday? Read a gospel. But no, don't let this be the end of it. Um, final thing to say is thank you, really. Thank you for coming. It would have been boring, slightly odd for me to give these talks alone in this nave. It's quite echoey without you guys here anyway. So thank you. And it's been great meeting lots of you. Um, So thank you very much for coming. And uh, that's a wrap. Thank you.